Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 12 of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. I'm so grateful that you found my podcast. If this is your first listen, I encourage you to follow the podcast, and I'd appreciate it if you could write and post a quick review. I find storytelling interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. Dr. Jeffrey C. Smith is joining me for this episode. Jeff and I go way back, before the prefix doctor was added to his name. In fact, Jeff was my boss for a couple of years. He was the founder and CEO of Tumbleweed Communications, where I led the marketing team. After Jeff sold Tumbleweed, he tried to pivot away from technology entirely, returning to Stanford to follow his first love, music. In fact, Jeff's mother was his first piano teacher, starting when he was only four years old. Ultimately, after a surprisingly winding journey, Jeff earned a doctorate in computer-based music and acoustics from Stanford. But like the mafia, technology, or maybe venture capitalists, can suck you right back in, especially after you and a friend created an idea during your studies that was perfect for the times, an idea that became Smule. At the start, in 2008, Smule was just a company with a fun name and a big dream. They aspire to bring music back to its roots and empower anyone to join in. Today, Smule is a vibrant global community of music lovers where millions of people across the world come together every day to share their passion for music, make new friends, cheer each other on, and simply have fun. The story of how Jeff got there is a lot of fun. I think you'll find it as fascinating as I do. Jeff Smith. Welcome to the Narrative Podcast. It is amazing to see you and uh, to catch back up with you. I'm thrilled to be here. It's great to see you, Jeff. You know, for those who are uh, listening and don't know, I worked for Jeff, with Jeff. We go way back, and but we actually, I don't think I've had a conversation other than on some social media since then. And uh, a lot has changed, obviously. So I was hoping, I want to I spend a bunch of time on Smule, obviously. But I was hoping that you could give my listeners, describe Smule and tell us a little bit about Smule. Then we can circle back to how you got there and the, and the story of, you know, your career and how you ended up getting to Smule. Because I think it's really fascinating. I'd be happy to. Smule builds mobile applications that allow people to create songs together. We simplify the process of collaboration and music creation. Typical user on Smule will launch our app, pick a song they like, create a version of their song, and then post that version across our network, inviting friends or strangers to come join their song. And with a little audio magic on the device and in the cloud, we'll mix together a song between these people, understanding parts, understanding things like pitch correction, transitions, lighting, etc. In fact, giving everybody quite a bit of aesthetic control over how they want to sound and how they want to look, but we'll fuse this song together to a new song, often a duet, sometimes solo, but many times groups and groups of people as well coming together uh, as singers, as players, as musicians. So you can summarize what we're doing is trying to bring music back to its roots as a creative participatory medium. You look at the history of music and 
we focus on the past hundred years of the recording, we forget the previous millennium when there weren't recordings. And if you wanted to experience music, you'd take the train to the concert, you'd go to church, you'd get your little sister to play the second part on the piano, you'd pass around the guitar, whatever it was. But it was a more intimate experience where we were creating, we were participating. And now we have all of these recordings that are amazing. Uh, and I love the recordings, but the premise behind Smeal is that there's more to music than consuming. It's about creating and participating. So our hope is to bring music back to those roots as a participatory medium. For the people that don't know, and I'll probably butcher some of this because it's obviously been a long time since we've connected, but you grew up, you're a bit of a musical prodigy, right? I mean, you grew up, started playing the piano at a very, very young age and probably were into music and training for music well before you were learning and training for anything computer or technology related. Isn't that a fair statement? I would agree with everything except possibly the prodigy point. For me, prodigy means Mozart. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so you're a notch below there. I'll give you that. Uh, we'll, but, we'll uh, see. I mean, maybe in years, who knows what people will say. <laughs> yeah, but I grew up in a musical family. My mother and father met in a dance band. That's how they got married. She played the piano. Uh, my mother taught piano. Home, you had a choice. You could practice the piano, or you could have, and you could have dinner, or you could not practice the piano and skip dinner. But yet, there was a lot of joy around the music and the music traditions in our home, in our living room. We had two grand pianos and an organ. We had another piano down in the basement. Somebody needed to practice while the upstairs pianos were being utilized. And so, um, yeah, there's, there was quite a bit of music in my home. And then you, you become interested in computers and technology and, you know, fast forward a little bit, you end up going off and going to Stanford and, uh, and studying computer science. And did you ever, at that point in time, could you see any connection where you would end up finding a way to combine these two passions and the way it ends up being now 30 plus years later? No, I never, never thought about combining them. And in fact, I actively resisted combining them. I didn't want to combine them. I felt that music was this very beautiful, human, expressive. He felt very comforting, very safe, very nostalgic. Whereas computers were interesting, creating, exploring. But I found computers were kind of these cold, calculated machine. I never felt that way about a piano. There was something very human about music. I felt it wasn't until quite later I dared find those two passions. You, you go, I'll just compress Stanford into you. You, you. you do your career, your initial career at Stanford, and you come out. And when I go back and think about it, I know you started your first company not that long after you left Stanford, which today probably more common than it was then, at least from, you know, as my view, I know that today, a lot of, you know, students at Stanford, very well-known ones, obviously have started companies while still there and, and immediately after. But I think that back then, at least in my recollection, more people would come out of Stanford and then go work at a bunch of other places and move up the ranks, et cetera, and get to the point where they then 
became entrepreneurial, but you began and you started companies and started that entrepreneurial journey pretty quickly after leaving Stanford. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. So I finished Stanford fast, somewhat out of necessity. Uh, I needed the money. Stanford was expensive. My parents said they'd pay me the same amount they pay if I went to Brigham Young University in Utah. There's a difference between their <laughs> tuition and the standards. I made up the difference, so I was working two jobs and and then worked a couple of jobs. It wasn't some grand plan, Jeff. It wasn't like, okay, I'm an entrepreneur. Instead, it was survive, get a job, and <laughs> try to figure out how to get shelter over my head, which to this day in the Bay Area is a daunting. So, um, and you end up starting a company and you sell it to Novell, if I recall correctly. And then you started another one, which was Tumbleweed. And I don't think there was anywhere in between those two, um, which is where, you know, we were together. Um, and Tumbleweed was in this, it's interesting now when I think back on it, because that was, you know, more than 20 years ago that we were together. And at the time we were very much evangelizing the idea of, how important security was and how important the, you know, the security of content was. And, you know, I don't think we called it content then, but, you know, messaging and communications and things. And, you know, here we are 20 plus years later and people are still talking about it in these ethereal terms. Like it's this new thing that no one's given a lot of thought of. That's got to be an interesting thing for you to just look back and, you know, were, were you prescient about that or was it just simply that the world has evolved slower than it needed to when it came to actually caring about the way this, the, you know, the, the various content is secured? Because I, I can imagine if we were together now trying to go out and market Tumbleweed, we wouldn't be that different from what we were trying to do in 1999 and 2000 and do in, in trying to get that story across to people. Yeah, quite possibly either an early or a prescient vision in your pick. But yeah, it was security then. So aside from my own growth and learning, I would say it's more straightforward now because back then, I remember pitching the chief information security officer at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley and then saying, why do I care about security? My bankers can go have lunch with the computer bankers. You can hand it this. They could give them the brief on the account for client transfers. Why would I possibly care about this? It's already happened. Possibly. And second, how does it really affect my bottom line? And since then, we all collectively understood that once asset is format distributable format, that there's a very different degree of harm. And so, and then you see networks coming down, getting hijacked. So there's, there's a, a much clearer notion of the return on investment. Remember, we were closing our quarters selling to these enterprises, and we were fortunate enough to get what half of the Fortune 500 as customers in the company. So Walmart, Chevron, General Motors, Usually they would sign our deals at the very end of the quarter. Now, they did that to get a better deal and to torture us, but, but perhaps what it also showed you is that it wasn't the top priority item. If the budget was there, they would go spend the money, but if the budget wasn't there, they'd kick it down to the next quarter. 
and then I remember that, you know, like I think one of the big things that's changed since then has been like, we weren't really talking about, and I don't think it really was as apparent then the consumer side of the equation, the privacy side of the equation from the individual where the, you know, it was all the wild, wild west in terms of utilization of the internet for this kind of information. And people weren't thinking about, well, I want to protect myself. So I'm going to demand of my bank or my credit card company or somebody else that they secure my information from, from right. through my side of the equation, which I don't think right. there was much pent up demand back then where the customers of Goldman Sachs were screaming at them, telling them you've got to protect that information. That's, that's such a critical insight, and it reminds me of one of our early mentors. He said, unless the consumer can understand it, you're going to have a harder time getting the business to it. He was so right. By the way, he went off to start Qualys, a leading um, security company. Very successful. In fact, when I was talking to him, he just sold CC Mail to Lotus. Had a meeting with Bill Gates. Bill Gates said some pretty difficult things threatening his future with CC Mail, so I guess he sold it to Lotus, but digressing, sorry, but to your point, yeah, having a consumer understand it really changes the nature of how enterprises think about technology. So the pivot over to you know, what you're doing now and what Smule does, you know, I, I think that in those days, one of the challenges was we were trying to scale enterprise software to this millions of transactions, messages, whatever the metric would be without really the existence of the cloud. You know, we were just deploying our customers. There was a huge cost on the customer side in addition to just our software and services, but yeah. the infrastructure costs and management of that. And, you know, then, then this thing called the cloud begins. And, you know, I think that what, what you do today as you know, in the way you described it earlier with Smule is very, you know, the, the cloud is obviously critical in terms of being able to manage these hundreds, thousands or millions of, of songs and, and people's inputs and the way that they can access them. Um, that had to be a learning experience for you in terms of going, you know, that, that pivot again from, you know, how do you build scalable enterprise, rigid, secure systems into how do you then build wildly, um, dispersed, distributed systems in this way. Yeah, huge change, huge change. And I can remember in the early days of security, wondering whether or not you could have cloud-based solutions. We didn't have a cloud, but in theory, if you did something up um, on the internet in a distributed fashion, could you really secure it? I mean, once something left the premises. Was it ever going to be secure? And we could tell ourselves, yeah, we figured it out. Or we could say, we kind of haven't quite figured it out yet. It's, it's fun of those two. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, post Tumbleweed, many conversations I had in the Tea Leaf days and other places where people, you know, over that 12, 15 year journey where people started off with, we would never let this information outside of our right. four walls to right. why the hell don't you have a cloud-based solution? Cause we don't want to run all this infrastructure. And that was just an amazing, for a short period of time, an amazing amount of shift that happened within those customers themselves. Pretty significant transformation. But for me personally, uh, yeah, I, I, I went through some transformations as well. I went back to get a PhD in music. And that was my next step after 
taking tumbling problem and selling the business. Uh, so I remember showing up back at Stanford. They thought it was one of those people going through a midlife crisis. So they're trying to search for what you do. So do you buy a red sports car? <laughs> do you buy a Harley Davidson? Do you try to go back and get a PhD in music? It looked like I was kind of in that category. So that was that intervening period of my life before I made the smell. So it wasn't a jump necessarily from security software to cloud-based. But that chapter in between is where you actually like ideated and the idea of Smule became real through your work in your, uh, with your PhD and with people you were working with there, right? I mean, it became obvious that this was an interesting thing. And one of the things I was going to ask is, you know, what, what came first there? I mean, I think that when I look at it naively, I look and go, well, you couldn't have really done it without the platform, i.e. the iPhone. But what came first, the idea or the phone? Like, was there the idea to that we could do this, but we don't have a platform for it? Or was it that, look, there's a new platform, we could do this? It's a great question. Uh, so first off, I went back to school not looking to create another company. I went back to school running and hiding in technology, trying to find some sanctuary in the middle of the Bay Area where it would and my family was going to stay in the area. I tried to eject. They weren't going for it. So Stanford seemed like the safest place to hide. <laughs> so that was, <laughs> that was a lot of what I was motivated in doing. So You're I literally hiding in plain sight. You know, it's, it's, yes. it's right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd go hang out with the piano studio, the piano professors there. Phenomenal. They each other every week and do concerts write music together, we play it. Our music, the joke was it was the new music ghetto because usually there'd be three people coming to our concerts and we were related to two of them. But um, it wasn't something that was going to be recorded and distributed on Spotify, probably. We loved it. It's just amazing, amazing experience. And so I went there to study music. I wanted a community. I remember applying to the PhD program and they laughed at me. You know, you don't fit in. You're like 40 years old. All these kids have master's degrees from Peabody and Geneva. You've been out there, you know, doing these stupid companies. <laughs> Why do we want you? So, Without them realizing that that's 100 <laughs> master's degrees combined, right? Maybe. And so they said, Why don't you audit? And we'll just test it out. We'll let you audit. So I audited full time, two years, took everything, took some classes twice. And then I applied and they let me in. So yeah, I was a different bird, different values there. But along the way to your question, circling back, they just hired this professor who graduated from Princeton, Gao Wang. He built this new audio programming language called Chuck. Imagine Java, except with real-time capacity and focused around music and sound and audio. And I didn't plan on getting into technology stuff. I felt like I had enough of that. I wanted to play the piano. But I was fascinated when I met Guh. And I was fascinated when I explored this language. And after we were working on some stuff together, he then goes off and 
forms the MOFO, which is the Mobile Phone Orchestra, which you're pointing with Nokia. And then the iPhone came out, and he then also started the Stanford Laptop Orchestra. It's hysterical. They're actually not bad at all. Um, but you've got people typing and turning their computers in a network, making music. We call it Spork. Related to Spork, Princeton Laptop Orchestra. It was a way to explore the intersection of people on networks. Super exciting, super fun. But um, I'm talking to God, and I'm going, you know, we could put Chuck on an iPhone. And I'll bet you it'd be easy, easier to allow people to create music together if we did that. And he's looking at me, and we're looking at each other. That would be possible to make sense. And then just chit-chatting with my former friend partner over there, David Cowan. said, you know, there might be something to this new iPhone, and you might be able to convince people to create music. But like contextually, this is just, I want to, for my listeners who aren't really maybe not doing the math like this, this is like 2008, right? I mean, the iPhone was, you know, we're an iPhone now 13, but this was iPhone 1 2007 version that had, you know, you couldn't even really make a phone call or get data in downtown San Francisco because the networks hadn't grown up yet. And the phone was, there was no app store yet or any of those things. Right. So this was like, this was at the very, there was now a platform, but it wasn't the platform we think of today. Yeah. Yeah. It was first iPhone didn't work very well and there was no app store. You had to jailbreak it with an app on it. So yeah, that was the state of the iPhone, and of course, nobody believed that Apple was real. And if it were real, nobody believed that Steve Jobs would actually open up an ecosystem. Never really done that before. So, but David Cowan came over to Stanford. Guy showed him a couple demos. <laughs> David then said, "You got to do this." Now, I had a little other insight because I'd on the side while going to Stanford started a company with a couple of former friends. And we were trying to figure out how to build mobile streaming on the jailbroken app. And then we we're looking to get the engagement numbers, and we're going, holy cow, this is crazy. This is nothing like desktop. A new level of engagement on the platform. And I was on a jailbroken app. That <laughs> So I see that. I see God, Stanford. I see Chuck. And it's like, yeah, this will probably work. So... I needed another startup, like I needed a hole in my head. But that's like the, like we were describing earlier. It's like the complete polar opposite of the way you can build an enterprise, at least then, the way an enterprise software company is built, where, you know, like they're coming to you because you've got something of interesting value and there's this giant universe of people out there. I don't even know how giant it was in 2008, but a universe of people out there looking to do something kind of self evangelizing. Like they're, they're flocking towards you on this jailbroken thing versus us going out and, you know, trying yeah. to get in front of the right person to do a yeah. 10 minute pitch and hopefully get a demo across and walk away and say, no, I want you to give me a bunch of money for this thing. I just showed right. you. Right. Absolutely. Just a stark, stark contrast formation. But uh, yeah, in this case, they flocked to it. They wanted music. They wanted to stream it on their phones and super popular. So Google ended up buying that company and folded it into Android. That was an insightful experience. Uh, that, yeah, so I think the result of looking at God, Chuck, music, 
you decided to go for it, I remember. I was up for tenure at Stanford. I was in my, what, fourth year as a PhD student. We went and we pitched Bessemer, because David wanted us to. And the lead partner on mobile, mobile back then meant ringtones. Meant <laughs> 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 carrier distribution. You know, you distribute to the carriers, so yeah. you had to go cut deals with Verizon. He looks at us and he goes, you're betting the farm on the iPhone? We go, yeah. And he goes, in India, Nokia means phone. Nokia will sell more units in one week than Apple will in a year. Steve Jobs is never going to let anybody play nice on his phone. So that was the pitch. So my takeaway from that is the VCs aren't always right. <laughs> <laughs> I know well, this was a surprise to, to the vast majority of people out there. <laughs> he wasn't. And to be fair to him, the world changed. You know, mobile fundamentally changed, where now you have one device that could do everything, not a hundred devices that have disparate functionality. Yeah. You have distribution through a software company, not through a carrier. You have everybody connected to the network the entire time. Absolutely. Multi touch. So, yeah, it was it was pretty lined up, and yeah, we pulled the trigger, and then two months later, Apple launched the App Store, which was awesome. Got to go on stage for a bunch of thirty days to try to promote iPhone. Yeah, good times. So I'm not a, a music. I'm not, I love music. I'm a music. I'm an absorber of music. I'm not a creator of music in any way. I'm the world's worst musician and singer. I've never been able to play an instrument and you don't want to hear me sing. I remember that the first time that Smule came to my real attention as anything was in the days of the auto-tune yourself idea very early on. I don't know even how long ago that was, but you know, the make, you know, anybody I could sing and I could sound like T-Pain when I did it, which isn't what it is now. I mean, it, it shifted like the, it's, evolved like anything that's been around now for 12, 14, 15 years would evolve. But that, that's that got to be an interesting journey about how you made the migration from. And I think then I'm guessing that the revenue model was simply selling the app. And I don't know, maybe you can describe what's, you know, how's the revenue model work now? I'm sure it's app sales, but it's also got to be subscriptions and other things that didn't even exist back then. Yeah. So I, IMT Pain was one of our first apps. We did Ocarina, which was extremely successful. Charged 99 cents per download for Ocarina. We charged 2.99. T Pain put auto tune in the palm of your hand, allowed you to pretend to be your favorite hip hop artist. So you could sing your version of Buy You a Drink or I'm in Love with a Stripper or Bartender or all of those songs that part of that genre of music. Um, and it was, We'd sell it, but we'd also sell you songs if you wanted to unlock additional songs. That was the business model. Yeah, it was a pretty massive shift in what was possible for consumers. In essence, we were taking technology that was reserved for artists and recordings. And we were literally dropping it in the palm of anyone's and then allowing them to experiment or more, sounding like T-Pain or Kanye. And then sharing your song. Um, but yeah, that, that ended up being a, a pretty seminal moment in music on the iPhone. 
And I, I would assume, you know, again, I don't know any of the internals of the business, but you know, you've got a huge community. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users out there. I would expect that that's actually where the real valuation, the real value in the business comes from is the fact that you have this community that's out there that is contributing and creating content and, you know, here we are now in 2021 where the, the term content is king gets thrown around pretty loosely, but yeah. you've actually created a way to create and enable a community that to then generate content that has value. Yeah. Yeah. Tens and tens of millions of users creating millions of songs every day together across every continent. We even see performances in Antarctica now and then catch a GPS signal there with somebody on a scientific expedition or what have you. This image of a guy dressed in like all the stuff, <laughs> standing outside, holding his phone up, trying to connect to a satellite or a, yeah. you know, some random signal bouncing off the world. Yes, it is about the community, enabling a community to create content together. But as they create the content and curate it, then the next person in just has a much better experience. Because they can see everything that people before them have done in terms of the music, but even in terms of things like the styles, the colors, mm -hmm. the aesthetics. There's some really talented people out there. Our philosophy is, is that not everyone who's going to use our platform graduated from Juilliard. We want the people who didn't graduate from Juilliard to come in and have fun creating music, just experimenting, exploring it. T-Pain allowed us to do that with AutoTune. We were less inhibited. We had this filter changing how you sounded and you could even assume a different persona so you didn't have to go out there and say this is me this is my song so yeah so the community we have of power users does an incredible amount of work which then opens up the experience to all of these people who are less sophisticated less committed but still enjoy it mm -hmm. we allow them to come in all right, you didn't have to author the song, you didn't have to author the parts, you didn't have to figure out how all of the transitions and styles came together, which audio filters, that's all done. You just, all right, let's pick, let's pick the Disney Frozen style. If I want to start in a forest, and then I want to transition into a fireplace setting. Great. We got all of those acoustics, we got all the transitions, we got all the AR, we got the song. Our power users have done that. We've given them the tools to create all of those effects in that content. And so then me, with my daughter, for example, then to come in and say, okay, I want the Frozen 2 aesthetic. I'll do it with Frozen 2, or maybe I'll do it with a different song. And then all of that magic comes together. Because the work's been done, then the content and style creation. It's interesting. I, I um, you know, like with this podcast, I ideated on doing it for a couple of years just because I like the concept. I like the idea of it. And I, as a marketer with high standards around delivery, talked myself out of doing it for about two years because I said, I'm not a professional broadcaster and I don't have a studio. I don't have all this professional broadcast equipment. I don't know a thing about how to edit something. And finally, someone looked at me and said, none of it matters. Just do it. Just Take and do what you do. People, if, if people like the content, they'll like the content. They don't care that you don't sound like Joe Rogan or anybody else just, you know, picking a random podcast name. I, 
I would imagine that, and you know what, there's like two and a half million podcasts out there, right? Some stupid number like that. And I would imagine that same thing exists. There's people who have that desire or passion or want to create. They just want to be passionate about something and share it. And if it's musical, no one is holding it up and going, well, you know, that person there, they, they, they're singing something from Frozen 2, but they don't sound exactly like Dina Menzel, right? They don't, they, and no one expects them to sound, when they get it through their head, like no one's expecting them to sound like a Dina Menzel either. Then you actually start to have fun with it and you're not trying to, that's what I've done is, and, and I can't think that it's that much different, honestly. It's just a different kind of creation. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you, Josh. There's so many topics packed into what you said that are just fascinating for me. One of them is just this notion of being authentic and how valuable that is. I remember with my piano studio at Stanford, some of those kids were just phenomenal pianists. They were pretty intimidating to go up and play on stage after one of them. It's about what you have to say. You have something that's unique. You have some experience or something that you're going to express. But it was very comforting to think about, you know, it's a different standard. It's about, you know, what I felt like I wanted to share and some people find it's relevant. That's okay. But that authenticity behind it was, was, was really interesting. Here's an anecdote on the authenticity. So we run, we run mobile ads. We run a lot of mobile ads and drive downloads. We have a product in addition to our same product, Auto Wrap, which converts speech into rap and corrects bad rapping. Um, and then we have a piano product that allows you to play piano. It's very accessible on an iPhone. One of our first marketing videos that we built for a piano product brought one of my colleagues, Michael Berger, who's at Stanford. He didn't know anything about shooting videos. He didn't know anything about ads. We have a tripod set up. It's got a horrible angle onto the iPad. Michael Berger's hands look like they're these stubby Beethoven-like fingers. It's not, he's not a hand model. Um, the lighting wasn't optimal. And, but he starts playing. He's awesome. And he realized in hindsight that it was a little blurry. And then unfortunately, one of our other colleagues managed to kick the tripod midway through the filming. So you have this massive jitter right in the middle of the ad. And yet, for the next two and a half years, this was the number one performing ad in all of mobile advertise and it's partly because the people trusted it was real yeah. and it was partly because we showed them also that it was accessible it was something that they could do as well nothing's perfect in this world and in fact perfect's kind of boring yeah. when, you, when you study music back in the days before the recording people made mistakes all of the time if they didn't make mistakes in a recital then Something was wrong because, of course, you're warming up. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna, and then if, if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying some of those things at the last moment that you should be trying, and you're not gonna get them all right. And that was the accepted standard. And then you have the recording come along, and all of these performance changes. This is one of the things. Everything changes um, in, in ways that aren't necessarily good ways. And so there, there's there's something about going back to the authentic and, and celebrating the imperfections, celebrating that we're vulnerable. Um, there's something very human in it. And, it's, I, I, and I think that's part of what's attractive about our value props. I, I had a guest on a, a few episodes ago who's a um, a reporter who worked for ESPN at one point in time in his career. And 
we were talking about the idea that how much the the pandemic itself shifted some of this that that it used to be a television show on a, a sports show on ESPN or a news show on CNN or whatever network of choice would never ever have a guest in a format like we're talking right now over a Zoom they would require professional quality you know, you've got to have a, a, a 4K camera, you have to have a producer, you have to have everybody else there. You know, there's no way that they're going to be wearing a headset or wearing headphones like you are. They're going to have an eye, you know, a, an in-ear piece, yeah. all those things. And then the pandemic happens and people can't go into the studio and they can't send reporters out and play. And everybody is doing news reports during a presidential election and during, you know, sports seasons from their home offices. Or their front yards or their back decks over a laptop, you know, with maybe some without even having a microphone. And it's now become acceptable. It's like when people look at it now, I mean, I look if I was running one of those companies, I'd say, why am I going to invest in all this other equipment? People have told me they don't really care. The content there even is what matters. And I think that's somewhat generational, right? I think that there's an acceptance, a generation that's grown up with Smule, with TikTok, with other things has now said, it's embraceable that way where you or I, we grew up with a generation that said, man, if it's not Walter Cronkite sitting behind a desk, right. or if it's not, you know, right. there's got to be a giant touchscreen that John King is bouncing on election results. Right. Maybe that ship has sailed for, for good yeah. or for bad. I don't know which side. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. So I would assume pivoting back on the pandemic real quick, I would assume the pandemic was an interesting thing for you because I would assume that just the the collaborative nature of people being unable to get out and see friends or family, but you give them through this community the ability to sing with someone else or groups of people had to be an interesting um, accelerator, I would think, for the business or at least a, a pivot point in the business. It was an accelerator. You know, first, my, my heart goes out to all of the people who suffer, all the people who died, all of the people who are still suffering. My heart goes out to those people who are the frontline workers delivering groceries to the rest of us or uh, working in the emergency rooms. It's a really horrible thing that we've had to come through here. And I've been in a position where, for me, yeah, our product is virtual. Just, you can do it virtually. You've been in a different place. But yes, it's also true that what we built became even more relevant during the pandemic because people were alone and isolated. And they wanted to feel a sense of connection to one another across this world. It was a pretty alienating time. And music was a perfect medium for them to do that. And so, yeah, uh, we saw an acceleration of our growth. I think the trend was likely going to happen when more people were going to see songs on mobile phones without the pandemic. But I think the pandemic accelerated the behavior and accelerated the adoption because the value proposition, I guess what we're doing made a lot more sense. I can even tell you, Jeff, that when we were going through those lockdowns, we could tell you the day and region every place was locked down with our data. And you see a massive spike in engagement. You know, the other massive spike we saw in our metrics was sharing. So we measure how many songs are created, et cetera. But we also measure how many are shared off network to Twitter, TikTok. And it, it had a massive shift in sharing during this period that 
has largely sustained. Saw a big spike, it came off the spike. Music is an important thing for this world. Art's an important thing. And when we're going through difficult times, it's, it's not a coincidence that we turn to art to try to make sense of it, or we turn to art to express our humanity, we turn to art to try to bring ourselves back together with one another. Um, that, that is happening. And that's perhaps one of the positive things, not just for, for us, but, but for this world. A couple things that I'm ending every, every pod with couple questions for you so is there any recent show movie something that you've binged watched or you know some documentary or something that you've seen that you would tell people they should go look at go watch this thing okay yes and i'm gonna i'm gonna get into a domain that i feel is risky especially online and it's typically something that i avoid doing because of, of the dangers but I'll share, I'll share one with you. I grew up in Utah. I'm Wyoming. Our office has moved to Salt Lake. So I'm looking at the lens of the world a little differently, having lived in California for 30 years and then having lived in Wyoming for the past year. I'm sure you could have stories about Georgia. Wyoming is the only state where the majority of our representatives in Congress are women. Well, a congresswoman. Is this Cheney? And she's taken pretty controversial positions historically in lots of topics. Controversial, especially for me and my family, I'll tell you. He's gay. Um, so she had this 60 Minutes interview this week at the stall where Leslie asked her why she voted to impeach Mr. Trump, why the rest of the Republican Party was up in arms about out, she felt about it, and then they were also asking her about her position on homosexuality, because she's got a gay sister, mm -hmm. and she came flat out, and she said, I was wrong. So that's something that I watched that meant a lot to me for a lot of different reasons, but I came away from it respecting, respecting her, and respecting her principles, and respecting her. I am there venturing out there into the danger zone, but there you go. You know, I had a conversation about her the other day with somebody, a friend of mine, and, and politically we're on a very different spectrum than I am, than she is. But her ability to be rational and to actually admit that she changed her position on something is pretty powerful. I, you know, when I, you know, okay, maybe she did it late. But she did it. And I think that there's such an unwillingness. We're so entrenched sometimes politically, and certainly the people who are elected are, to just, they've got a position and they can't diverge off the position. And I think now she's at the point with all the stuff she's getting from both sides. She, you know, she, it's not like she comes from a naivete on the political landscape. So. No, nope, no, nope, there's a history there. And there's quite a history there. You just look at the different issues we have in the country. And I certainly think my role of music and bringing people together to art is really important. But I look at the voice of somebody like this, and I go, gosh, I, I, I have some comfort, I have some respect, but also some fear that that voice is going to be lost. Yeah. So that was one thing, but gosh, I didn't mean to get too far away from the mission of music and tech and, and the rest of it. And, but, and I always reluctant to dabble into the political scene because of how dangerous it is. 
on that on the on the questions front though is there a recent book or a or a different podcast you've listened to recently somebody that you know that people might not be familiar with that you recommend yeah um so books i i confess i'm ba- i'm going back through jane austen the second time and so that's where i'm focusing more of my energy right now what i had to read her as a high school and college student, I was surprised at how funny she was. I'd never seen the degree of satire before. And coming back to it sec- to the second time is it- just precious. That's something that I'm, I'm deep involved in. Um, on the music scene, I'm playing a lot. So well, that, that was the, my third question is always, and, and I wanted to frame it differently for you because I know your background, but my, my typical question is what's your current song or artist that you've got on repeat. But uh-huh. I actually think in your case, I want to point people to where they can listen to your music and give, you know, tell people that, you know, separate from creating a company that and running a company that is a musical background, you yourself are a composer and composing music. And I know that that's some of that's accessible to people. And I'd love you to talk about that and tell people where they can hear your music. Uh, thank you. Uh, and that, that's of course not my goal on being on your program, <laughs> I, but it's mine. <laughs> it's one of mine. Uh, you know, I'll quote, I'll quote, they go, why don't you compose more? Moses response was, the world already has enough bad music. Doesn't need more. <laughs> so it's a very, very, uh, <laughs> very humble thing to say. Uh, Which is the I opposite like... of what I just said about podcasts, by the way. Just like... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. you know. So I'm working on Brahms of the '76. Written in the middle period. There's a couple of pieces there that are very light and fast and quite difficult to hear. I'm working on more Bach. I went back to his Symphonia, so people know about his Volkert career, adventures, etc. They also know about his inventions. Two part. He wrote these three part pieces right after the invention of the Symphonia, and I'm finding each of them is just this little masterpiece. So what what you get from playing some of these pieces is riveting emotionally, and so I'm loving that. And then yeah, I'm writing my own stuff. I'm working on an AT Tableau set, a piano modeled after. By the way, lived in Menlo Park briefly way back when, a Russian composer. Um, but I'm exploring different techniques around polytonality with the cafes. And I post my recordings with Bach and Chopin or my own pieces on my blog, writingbeast.com. Um, but that's just kind of a, a repository of my music. So I'll record, I'll write, I'll put a score, or I'll write an essay. Posted on my blog. I'm mostly composing for myself because during the pandemic, it's hard to get ensembles together. Cool. So, um, this has been really fun. It's been great to catch back up with you. I think people are going to find it really interesting. Maybe we'll get back together and do it and do some follow on later on. Thanks for thanks for being on with me. I love your show. I really miss working with you. You're just such a gifted person in so many different ways. Yeah. I take that as a huge compliment. I've told people before, I feel the same about you. And I've told people before that I always felt it goes back to a comment you made early on in the conversation about, you know, how we we have all grown up. Obviously, it's been a long time. We're all a lot more mature and a lot more experienced today. But 
I always felt that I was either on the verge of quitting or being fired almost every day, but there was a tension around that that actually made us really good. You know, it's, it's in the moment, it's hard to do, but thinking back on it, there was a, there was a, a, a sharpening of the stone that was going on that an awful lot of my follow on career experience was framed from learning that way. So, and I have a huge amount of respect for you ever since then. So. I appreciate everything, Jeff. And gosh, just so phenomenal to see what you did when you went on to Kiwi and it's even more obvious than incredible talent. And thank, thank you so much. I can't think of any better way to end the formal part of this than with a compliment for me. So I'm going to stop the recording now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.